Well, good morning. Uh, I don't know all of you. My name is Terry Kaitler. My wife and I, her name is Viola, have been attending here for about 19 months or so. And it's uh, my privilege today to, uh, to spend some time in the Word of God with you. So before we do that, let's uh, bow and invite God by His Spirit to reveal certain things to us this morning. So, Father, this morning as we look into your word, uh, we're looking into something that is living and that is active and that is life-giving, and that you long today to have connect with us in a meaningful, transformative way. And so we invite you by your spirit to come and to touch us this morning at points of need in our lives. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, Viola and I, along with uh, two other couples, uh, sorry, I'm going to be looking back at the screen. I, I preached, you know, a little bit in my life. I've been a pastor, and I was used to controlling PowerPoint for myself. So this is a massive act of faith here to have someone in the back <laughs> controlling it and my control freak nature not being able to see what's going to be coming up behind me. So, so as I was saying, a few weeks ago, Viola and I, along with two other couples, went yeah, to see a movie. In the 23 minutes of trailers that were shown before the movie, uh, none of which, by the way, we were interested in seeing after all of that, there was one, however, that was quite uh, interesting from a, a perspective that I want to share with you. It was called Black Adam. Black Adam is a movie that is coming out in the fall. Anyone heard about Black Adam? Know about Black Adam? Okay, a couple of you do. Um, it's a fiction, it, it has roots in Egypt, which is significant to where we're going to go this morning. Um, it's a fictional story of a man who was born a slave 5,000 years ago, who was killed and then was reborn as a god. And he says in the voiceover of the trailer, my son sacrificed his life to save me, now I kneel before no one. He shows up in the present day, and one of the characters challenges him with these words. In this world, there are heroes and there are villains. Heroes don't kill people. And Black Adam's response is, well, I do. Now remember, Black Adam has been reborn as a god. And the question in the movie at one point is, what kind of god is he? Will he destroy the world, or will he save it? If we go back to Egypt, 4,000 years ago or so, we have another story, this one true. And it asks exactly the same kind of question, what kind of God is he? This time, however, the question is asked about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament that we worship and follow today. And by the way, when you're reading your Bible and you're reading in the Old Testament and you see the word LORD and it's all capitalized, that is the word English translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. And God revealed himself to Moses and to the nation of Israel by that name. That, that, that's how God chose to reveal himself. And so we may use that name. We may speak of the Old Testament God by the name he has chosen to reveal himself as, which is Yahweh. 
And the story that asks the question, what kind of God is Yahweh, is found in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. The book of Exodus is the grand story of how Yahweh brings his people, the nation of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And many of us will remember this story, but if it's new to you, I'm going to invite you at some other time to read the book of Exodus in the Bible. And the story of Exodus 17 is a smaller story embedded in that larger story. Now, before we dive into that story, let's just put a few background pieces in place that will help us understand our story a little bit better. You will remember from that story that Yahweh sends Moses to Pharaoh, who is the ruler of Egypt, and says to him, let my people go. Now, what we need to understand in that scene is that Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, was seen by himself as well as all of the people of Egypt as a god on earth, small g. He was a god on earth, and he had been given a purpose by the, it wasn't really a pantheon, but it was a plethora of Egyptian gods. They had multiple gods, and Pharaoh had been given a purpose by these gods to fulfill on earth. And his God, again, small g, given purpose on earth was to preserve the God-given order, the Egyptian God-given order called Ma'at, M-A-A-T. That was his purpose on earth. Now I want to show you the picture of a headdress here, and you're probably familiar with this. Uh, the one on the left you can see is it, it's actually from the Valley of the Kings, um, in Egypt, it's, it's uh, hieroglyphic on the wall, and you can see Pharaoh's headdress, and he has a serpent. Here we actually have one of, uh, one of the, one, the Pharaoh's headdress, and you can also see the serpent there. The serpent or snake on the headdress, or not called a Urias, supposedly spat flames at the enemy of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, as a god on earth, was able to trample thousands on the battlefield. He was thought to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and controlling nature and fertility. This is who Pharaoh saw himself to be. This is who the Egyptian people understood Pharaoh to be. And Moses comes, stands before Pharaoh, and says, Yahweh says to you, let my people go. And his response, Pharaoh's response, is recorded in chapter 5, verse 2, and, it's, and he says this, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh. I will not let Israel go. And Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh, is a question that has been repeated countless times throughout history, and at points, we too, if we were honest, ask that question. Who is Yahweh? Who is God? Interesting little side note. When Pharaoh responds that way, Moses gives him a sign. He takes his staff and he throws it on the ground and it becomes a snake. And Pharaoh goes, whoop-de-doo. And he calls his magicians, and he says, see this. And so his magicians take their staff and throw it on, they, their staffs and throw them on the ground. 
and they become snakes. But something fascinating happens. Moses's snake staff eats all of theirs. Spitting flames on your enemies just got eaten by the staff of God. That is incredibly significant in our story. And in fact, in all of the interactions between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And what we have in the Exodus story is not God just flexing his muscles because he can. It's actually an encounter between two deities. You have God, Pharaoh, and you have Yahweh, and at the end, only one will remain standing. Who will that be? And who is that God? What is he like? Pharaoh, as a god, is a cruel and hard taskmaster who makes the Israelites make bricks without straw, and he doesn't decrease their quota. He hears the complaints of the Israelites, and frankly, he just does not care. So the question we want to ask out of Exodus 17 is, what is Yahweh like? Who is he? And for our conclusion, we want to answer, how do we respond and live in relationship with what we have just learned about Yahweh? Now, just to be clear, Jesus in the New Testament is Yahweh from the Old Testament walking around in a body. If you have thought or been taught that there's this God in the Old Testament, and then we have Jesus, this guy in the New, and they're different, you have been incredibly misled. A couple of weeks ago, Gary preached on Thomas. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I see the resurrected Lord. And we've said, you know, that's doubt. Thomas was a pretty smart guy. He'd figured one thing out, and it was this. If Jesus rose from the dead, that meant something. And what it meant was that the guy from the Old Testament named Yahweh was walking in their presence. And that was unthinkable to most of them. And he was going, if this is true, if Yahweh has taken on a body, I need to see this for myself before I believe. Because he got it, right? And we've tended to separate them, and they are not separate. They are exactly the same. Now, what we're going to do this morning is read our passage off the screen together. So I'm going to invite you to read together with me out loud. The reason we do this is because part of understanding the Word of God is actually hearing it. Not just physically reading it, but hearing it. So we're going to read out loud together. Read with me. Next, they journeyed forth, the whole company of the sons of Israel, from the wilderness of Sin, setting out as Yahweh directed. They pitched camp at Rephidim, which means places of spreading out, where there was no water for the people to drink. So it was that the people became dissatisfied with Moses and said, give us water so that we may drink. 
But Moses answered them, Why are you so dissatisfied with me? Why are you putting Yahweh on trial? Still, the people were parched for water there, so the people grumbled against Moses and said, What is this? You have brought us up from Egypt to kill us, along with our sons and our stock of thirst? Moses then called out to Yahweh for help, saying, What am I to do with these people? A little more, and they will be stoning me to death. So Yahweh said to Moses, Move along in front of the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the river Nile and go along. When you see me standing in front of you, there on a rock in Horeb, then strike the rock and water will flow forth from it so that the people can drink. So Moses did exactly that as the elders of Israel looked on. For that reason, he called the name of that place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means dissatisfaction, on account of the dissatisfaction of the sons of Israel and on account of their putting Yahweh to the test, asking, is Yahweh present with us or not? Thank you. So in this text, we have a couple of problems. How many of you have ever been really, really thirsty? Right. And you've had nothing to drink. Then you know that this is a problem. And you know what the Israelites are experiencing. They are in a wilderness, which is a desert, and they have no water to drink. And it's not like they don't have what they want. It's not like, well, God gave us Coke and we really like Pepsi. Right? Like they have nothing. Okay? And it is a legitimate problem because they can die of thirst. So that's problem number one. But there's another problem, at least potentially. If you remember what we read from verse one, what does it say? How did they get to where they are? And God led them into the wilderness to a place called Rephidim. Yahweh directed them to a place where there is no water. Yahweh, who sets these people free from slavery, directs them to camp in a place where there is nothing to drink. Now that raises a question, at least for me. How does this line up with Psalm 23? He leads me by quiet waters and green pastures. This is a desert, and he led them there. The wilderness with no water seems like a very interesting place to be led by God. And what we encounter in our story are two very different perspectives on the wilderness. And so we'll walk through them. We have Israel's perspective. The wilderness, in Israel's perspective, is a bad place. They actually would prefer Egypt. 
They wanted to be back in Egypt. They seemed to have forgotten all about slavery and making bricks and not having a day off and any of that stuff. But the desert, the wilderness, is bad. The wilderness, secondly, is a place of testing Yahweh. They actually challenge God's character and his actions. Now, there's a whole lot we could say about that. We do have the freedom as the children of God to pray our disappointments and unanswered questions to God. You simply need to read the Psalms, and you can see that. This is something different. This is actually challenging the character of God. Right? So thirdly, the, it was a place of emptiness and desolation. There was nothing there, at least from their perspective. I mean, at least Egypt had civilization and stuff and a river and all of that. It was a place of abandonment and death. Their conclusion was God has led us here, God slash Moses, they sometimes are interchangeable, has led us here to actually die. That's, that's the whole point of this thing. And so it becomes a place of grumbling and self-pity. Poor, poor, pitiful us. Right? Well, what's Yahweh's perspective on the wilderness? Well, it's actually potentially a really good place. And why is it a good place? Well, first and foremost, because God is actually there. Yahweh is there. And in case you are wondering if he's there, you have a pillar of cloud by day, just in case you forget, and a pillar of fire by night to just kind of give you the visual that, you know, you're not abandoned. He's there in that place. It's a place for him to test his people, and the reason God tests his people is to find out what's in their hearts and whether they actually love him and trust him, which is supposed to yield a good result, a purifying result. Thirdly, it's a place of intimacy. Yahweh actually lives among them. And a little later on in that journey in the wilderness, those 40 years, Yahweh instructs Moses how to build a house for him, and he lives in the middle of his people. There is this incredible intimacy with God. It's a place of miraculous provision. God does more miracles in the desert providing for his people than almost anywhere else. They, they see things that none of us have had the privilege of seeing. The miraculous provision of God. And finally, it is a place for them to learn how to worship and be thankful. And so God, Yahweh, sees the wilderness from a completely different perspective than his people do. Now for us, we rarely end up in a physical wilderness but we end up in all kinds of other wildernesses of our own. There's the wilderness of an unexpected illness. There's the wilderness of a financial setback. There's the wilderness of a relational bomb that destroys your world as you knew it. There's the wilderness of the death of a loved one. There's the wilderness of struggling 
with life that is not going the way we want it to or think it should. And each of your lists is different. But you have at least one wilderness. And the good news is if you don't have one right now, it's coming your way. Right? And the question becomes, which of these two perspectives am I going to choose on the wilderness? Is my wilderness potentially a good place because Jesus is there? He is close to the brokenhearted, right? Will I choose to continue to love and trust him even while praying my frustrations and unanswered questions to him? Or will I rebel and actually challenge his character? Will I invite intimacy with Jesus or see this only as a time of desolation and abandonment that needs to be gotten through as quickly as possible by any other means? Will I look to Jesus for his provision, asking for it, or simply grumble and wallow in self-pity? Will I worship and learn how, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to end up giving thanks, not necessarily for, but in the middle of the wilderness? A wilderness I didn't choose and I don't want. Now, these are hard questions, loved ones. They just are. And they take time to be answered. And they take time to be worked into our lives. And we will continually stumble and fall along the way. And when we do, we encounter the grace of Yahweh. But fundamentally, what is the trajectory of my heart? What is the trajectory of your heart as it relates to the wilderness? Well, that brings us to God's solution to this question. Who is Yahweh? It's a trial. The Hebrew of our text is clear. The people have brought a legal complaint, a legal charge against Yahweh. That's the meaning of the Hebrew in verse 2. And there are two parts to their complaint or their legal charge. That God slash Moses, and as I said, those are sometimes used interchangeably, have brought them out of Egypt to kill them by lack of water. And then from verse 7 of our text, the second part of that charge is that God is not among them. And this is a legal case against the character of God and his leadership and actions. And in fact, this whole story is actually about a lawsuit against Yahweh by the nation of Israel. That's what this is. And the Israelites preferred the certainty of slavery over the wilderness with Yahweh. They would rather go back to being slaves than live in the wilderness with Yahweh. So God gives some instructions as to how this legal case will actually be settled. And he gives four directives to Moses as to how to handle the lawsuit. Doesn't quite look like our legal system, but it was the one they had. 
The first thing he says is walk in front of the people. Literally, it is walk in front of their faces. These people have been literally in the face of Moses saying, you've led us here, God's led us here to die of thirst. And God says, Moses, I want you to walk in front of these people so they can see you. This isn't happening in secret. This is in front of everybody. Secondly, take some elders with you. Elders had several functions in the Old Testament in the life of Israel. They served as witnesses, first of all, for agreements and transactions between people. And that is their, going to be their role here. They are going to witness how God resolves this legal suit. And secondly, they acted as adjudicators or judges where matters were in dispute. You brought disputable matters to the elders who then gave a decision on this issue. The third thing that God says to Moses is take in your hand the staff. And then he adds this little descriptor of the staff with which you struck the river, meaning the Nile. Now, if you've read the Bible for any length of time, you know that it is a book of very few words, and we often have questions about things when it's just not answered in the text. There's just no extra descriptions in the text. If, if the text can say it in four words, they will say, it'll say it in four words, not six. Right? It, there, it's just this incredibly concise book. And here, God says to Moses, he could have simply said, take the staff. Everybody would have known what the staff was. And in other places, he says to Moses, just take the staff. Except he adds this little descriptor here, with which you struck the river, the Nile. Why in the world would you add that in this case when you don't add it elsewhere? The Nile River, or simply known as the river in Egypt, was in the Egyptian worldview controlled by four gods. The main one being Hapti, who was a water fertility god. Hapti was so associated with the Nile as its source and the god of it that he was known as the river. So you have a god with a small g who's known as the river, and you have a physically flowing Nile River that is known as the river. And God says to Moses, take the staff with which you struck the river. And he's saying two things when he's saying that. When you struck the physical water of the Nile, but also when you struck the God who is supposedly the one who is in charge of the Nile, right? And when Moses struck the river with his staff, it turns to blood. It goes from life-giving to death-bringing. And the people want to go back to Egypt where they had the water of the Nile, the river, which God had turned to blood. They would rather go back to living in slavery and depending on something that had been judged by Yahweh rather than trusting him in the wilderness. That's a fascinating thought. 
Let's go back to slavery and back to something God has already demonstrated his power and judgment over and on. We want to go back there rather than trusting you as we move into the future. But you know, loved ones, we do the same thing. The story in Exodus is actually our story. We're grafted into that family tree. That's about us. Those are our ancestors back there spiritually. And we do the same thing. There are many times when we face our wilderness experiences that we long to go back to ways of thinking or ways of acting that the world adopts, ways that have been judged by Yahweh and Jesus as not bringing true life, as not bringing hope, as not bringing healing. It's a warning. Well, the fourth directive is simply go, act on this. So now God says, we're going to test the veracity of your complaint, which is twofold, remember. God brought them out to kill them by thirst. And secondly, God is not among them. That's the complaint, and that needs to be resolved. Is this actually true? And Yahweh says to Moses, go. And then he gives Moses this instruction. When you see me standing in front of you there on a rock in Horeb, then strike the rock and water will flow forth from it so that people may drink. Now, in order for us to understand what is going on here, we need to visualize this. So I'm going to ask Brad and Cheryl if they would come up. I have a staff. Unfortunately, it's a little short. But we came on our motorbike today, so this is the biggest I could bring. And I'm, I'm going to ask Carol and Ian. I, I, I need you as volunteers as well. OK, so I, if we could all just come right over here. I'm going to set this scene for us, OK? I'm going to assign you a, a couple of parts. OK, so the first thing I'm going to say, uh, hopefully you can all see this. Uh, but, but these stairs over here are going to be the rock, okay? This is the rock over here. And uh, now we're going to assign parts. So Ian and Carol, you are going to be the elders who are going to give witness to this event, okay? Large guy with no hair, Brad. <laughs> you look like Moses. You're going to get the staff, all right? Got it. So Cheryl, you know what that means, right? Yeah, yes, and, and, and in this, this is absolutely true for a completely different reason, because you are Yahweh. Oh. Yes, but only for this short, tiny little <laughs> demonstration. Yes. All right, so what I need to have happen is, Yahweh, I need you to walk over and stand on the rock, please. Okay, now... Moses, you're going you're gonna to walk in front of the people, in front of their face. Okay, I know we're, we're getting feedback. And then Ian and Carol, you are going to witness this. So you walk behind him. You can turn around. Uh, okay, so keep walking, keep walking. Here we are, here we are. And you're going to get in front of the rock. Now what you need to do is extend the staff, Brad, 
All the way. No, 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 no. You're, you're hitting the rock. You're, you're <laughs> extending this. Yes. Okay. Now I need you to wind up and I need you to, no, no, no. Write them smack the middle of the rock. Oh, with force. Okay. So now you understand the picture. You're not whacking the rock. Who are you whacking? You are whacking Yahweh. Yahweh's on the rock. You are whacking him with the staff. And we are deciding not to have water come out here because we have enough work to do in the church without restoring the gym. <laughs> right? All right. Now, water comes pouring out of the rock, and our witnesses witness this, and the verdict is, is God leading them to die, and is he with them? And the answer is, he's with them, and he didn't lead them to die. Thank you. Okay. And, and Cheryl's the boss. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Won't step into that one. <laughs> that is what this text is about. And we started with the question, what kind of God is Yahweh? And the answer is, Yahweh is the kind of God that when you whack him, he bleeds the water of life for you. Right? It's not Pharaoh who says, make more bricks, and there's no rest for you. He says, you have a complaint, whack me and see what happens. Right. Now, I'll give you just one little tidbit extra. This story gets repeated further on in the Exodus. And it's the story that prevents Moses from entering the Promised Land. And in that case, the people are again grumbling for water. And God says to Moses, Take the staff in your hand and go to the rock. But his instructions are different. What does he say? Speak to the rock. Why? Because you already whacked me. Once that's happened, you speak. We crucify Christ once. And then we ask, right? And that mistake, because you did not treat me as holy, you did not take me at my word, prevents Moses from entering into the promised land. Right? So Yahweh is the God who hears the cries of his people. He answers them with compassion as opposed to God, Pharaoh, who piles on the work without a break. Yahweh is the kind of God who leads his people to places where he offers us intimacy with himself, where he can provide for us, sometimes miraculously. He's the kind of God who sets people free and then invites their worship, not commands it, invites it, not as the worship of a slave, but of our own free will. Yahweh is the kind of God 
who on earth as Jesus says, nail me to a cross. And instead of taking revenge, I'll give you life. I will meet your needs. Just like I did with water in the wilderness. Well, in conclusion, let us think for a few minutes about what this means for us this morning. Whenever we read the Bible or hear it, there are two inherent invitations in it. They're words that we don't necessarily like. They're repent and believe. Repent is not, first and foremost, a theological word, although we've made it that. Originally, the word repent was a word from traffic. If I get my bearings straight, I'm facing west. If I would say to you, I want to walk to hope, and I would start walking heading this direction, you would have said to me, you know, Terry, you need to repent. And you're not doing a theological truth. You're saying you need to do a U-turn. That's what the word meant. And whenever we hear scripture, the question comes to us, how are we aligned with the truth? And sometimes the realignment does need to be 180 degrees. Sometimes it's five degrees. But there's an alignment with scripture. And then there's a belief. And belief is more than an you know, intellectual assent. It's actually an ordering how I live my, how I think and then how I live my life. Those are the invitations every time scripture is read. And this story has been about a time in the wilderness and God's miraculous provision in that place. And so perhaps the alignment that is needing to happen relates to your own wilderness experience. Are you rebelling against it? Are you thinking it's negative and that God has completely missed the mark? Are you grumbling and complaining? Do you need to realign so that you are more in line with how God actually sees time in the wilderness? As places with invitations to intimacy, to demonstrate our love and trust in him, to trust him for miraculous provision and to deepen our worship of him. Times in the wilderness and loved ones, yours may have gone on for a while, are difficult, but God is not absent. He is incredibly present. And he longs for you and me to experience that. So is there a realignment needed? The second part of our story is about God's provision, and that's going to lead us into communion. And I trust that you all got one of these, picked one of these up as we came in. And the question I'm going to invite us to think about this morning is a real simple question. What is a need you have? Don't, don't open yet. We're not, we're not quite there. What is a need you have? The Israelites needed water. There was nothing wrong with that need. It was, it was a, a, a legitimate need. Now, I'm not talking about wants. I'm talking about need. It's a need you have. Is there some actual physical need? Is it a financial need? Is it a job? Is it a 
place to live? Is it getting into a certain school? Is it a need for clarity? Is it a need for healing? Is it a need to be released from shame or guilt or something that's going on in your life? Is it a burden? Is it a burden you've been carrying? Perhaps alone? You're going, where, where do I go with this? Need help. Need freedom. Need release from a burden. It's a deep need. And you know, Yahweh meets us in our burdens in multiple ways. There are times he simply lifts them and takes them. There are times he says, you know what, I'm giving you peace. It's a gift, I'm giving you peace. You're in the middle of that, here's, here's peace. And I will give you what you need to stay there until it changes. And it'll be supernatural, but you will do so from a place of peace. Right? And you, you may have other needs, right? But Yahweh is a God who bleeds the water of life for his people. Jesus, who instituted communion, and by the way, he instituted it as a full-blown meal, not a postage stamp size of styrofoam cracker and a thimble full of juice, just so you know. This is not what Jesus actually did. They sat around a table and ate a complete meal. And so we use the image of table. And at the table, he is the host. I'm only a waiter this morning, people. This is not my table. You did not come here to this table to meet with me. You came to meet Jesus. And any time you come to his table, he's there. And today, he, in a life-transforming, life-giving way, wants to actually connect with you through this. Because you're at his table. And he has time for you, right? Because this represents his bleeding, the water of life, for your point of need. That's what this is about. And when we use the words in remembrance, it does not mean have a mental flashback. It means live in the reality of what I have accomplished. That's what remembrance means. And so the invitation for every single one of us this morning is take your need and come to his table and meet him and have him connect with you around that need. Now here's how we're going to do this and I'm going to and this is an invitation Okay, which means you have the freedom to say no. Everything is done by invitation. Okay? And it may be a little uncomfortable for you. I understand that. 
But the way we're going to do this is I'm going to invite you to get into groups of four. Four people. If you have to go five, you can do that. Six is the absolute maximum. And the reason is we'll never get through it if we have more than that. Four people. Okay, instruction number one, four people. If you don't want to, just stay seated and just do this on your own. Okay, so you don't have to participate. But if you want to, four people. When you're in your group of four people, open the top. This is a two kind of layered thing. There's the top clear, well, sort of cellophane thing that accesses the little wafer. Open that up and just eat the wafer together. Now, I asked you earlier to think of a need in one sentence. One sentence. If you have the freedom, share with those four people what that need is. They do not need the backstory. God's already got the backstory. We're asking him to deal with it. It may be of interest to the people in your group, but the backstory doesn't matter. God's got it. Just one, this is my need right here. One sentence, boom, done. And then pray for each other and those needs. And make sure anybody who mentions a need has gotten prayed for. And once you're finished praying, open the second layer and drink the juice. Okay? And at some point, the worship team, when I signal them, will come up and they will start singing. And if you're still praying, you just keep praying. Okay? Because you're encountering Jesus at that point. And again, as I said, if you're not comfortable with this, just stay in your seat. Don't do anything. Just you and Jesus meet around this communion thing. Okay? And he will connect with you there. But communion is about you and God, and it's about us and God. And Jesus has intentionally put us into family. Right? So that's why we're going to do it this way. So I invite you to stand. Find three other people. If you're comfortable, if not, stay seated. Eat the bread. Share the need, one sentence. Pray, drink the juice.